Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Joe Lysett. This is an absolute cracker. I think this flies by faster than any episode in the history of the show. And he's such a phenomenal guest. Obviously, very, very funny. But the the stories behind the scenes of him going on Laura Koonsberg's show and his comments about Liz Truss, including him going for dinner afterwards with Rishi Sunak and others, but nevertheless, it's a great story. Um, his campaigning on Qatar, uh, this David Beckham thing, the money shredding thing, just the stories behind those big events are brilliant. But also just how political is he and what are his politics and where do they come from? And this is a great discussion about LGBT issues and politics and just the effect that his parents and upbringing and growing up in the Midlands and all those different things that shape a person. So it's the personal and the political and he's just... such a funny man, which of course you already know, but this is a real treat. Um, Just to let you know, my next guest on Monday the 17th of July is Mari Black, the SNP MP, who today, just before I record this now, has just announced she's standing down at the next general election. So that will be incredible. Of course, her maiden speech in 2015 went viral. She's currently the deputy leader of the SNP in Westminster. And now she's announced she's off. So that will be incredible. Monday the 17th of July with Mari Black. And of course, everything that's going on in the SNP, everything that's going on with Scottish politics, what a phenomenal person to listen to. Then in August, I'm at the Edinburgh Festival. You can buy tickets to my new show, Inside Number 10. I'll put the uh, link in the blurb. But I'll be doing three political parties up there. They're about to go on sale. And my three guests, I'm delighted to announce, are Kate Forbes, Angela Rayner, Humza Youssef. Every single one of those will be electric. They'll be on sale soon. I'll tweet them. So just follow me, at Matt Ford on Twitter. Um, Anyway that's enough of all the promotion and everything. Um, uh, This interview with Joe Lysa is a treat and it was just such a pleasure. Um, And somebody really uses his platform. And I know obviously people in the public uh, sphere um, will um, campaign on things and raise issues, but he's really inventive. And it's really just his insight into the issues he chooses and how he chooses to raise awareness is fascinating. And he wears it all very lightly. He's very sort of modest about the whole thing. Um, But, of course, I I don't think there's really anyone that's able to consistently uh, do what he does. And and he's he's just a a thrilling person to spend company with. So, uh, without further ado, Joe Lysett. But, of course, uh, as always at the Duchess Theatre shows, uh, a bit of stand-up about the fortnight in politics.
what a phenomenal fortnight it has been in British politics because the Standards and Privileges Committee didn't just investigate and rule on Boris Johnson. They also attacked the MPs that had attacked them. And I don't know if you saw Jacob Rees-Mogg's response on GB News. I watched it on YouTube the other night. And what's fascinating about Rees-Mogg is actually he's phenomenal. He could literally argue any side of any argument and the opposite the following day. And he's so good at it, I, I would actually believe him. He's got that incredible ability to go, well, it is rather irrelevant, actually, what my opinion was yesterday when, when the facts changed so much, the outcome, and that simply is the matter of it. I go, actually, he's got a really good point there. He's so eloquent in the way that he puts these things. And what he's really good at, or what he tries to be really good at, is not just saying, look... Because basically what's happened is they've slagged off the committee. This is a man who believes in parliamentary sovereignty, campaigned during that referendum for parliament to be, to be sovereign. Parliament is flexing its sovereignty and he doesn't like it because they're attacking his mate correctly because he lied to the House of Commons. So what they want is an outcome they would never, ever get because how could you conclude any other than Boris Johnson had lied to the House of Commons? So what they try and do is make it bigger than that. This is not just about the committee. It's about the fundamental rights of freedom of speech. And if I may be permitted to go even further about whether there is or not a soul and Harriet Harman is not qualified in this arena and I don't say this lightly she is in danger of opening up a portal to hell and ushering in millennia of satanic rule now in that instance if asked to serve under Satan I would consider a role in the national interest but only on that basis I often think if I could advocate for myself as well as Rhys Mogg could man I would get refunds all the time no 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 I'm afraid no the, the, the sense of engineering works is simply nebulous. Uh, uh, no, no, no. The train departure time is a form of contract. And not only uh, do you breach the ticket, you actually breach the fundamental rights of the Magna Carta. Of course, which, uh, as you will well know, working for a Vanty West Coast amounts to treason. And, uh, no, no, no. Well, hanging is a moot point. Yes, I will hold. Um, oh, you've seen sense. A five-pound voucher. Good day to you, sir. Yes. I mean, what's really odd is him and Nadine Dorries as some sort of axis where, you know, whenever they appear next to each other, stood next to each other, they remind me. About every 15 years in this country, there's a story about a school kid running off with his maths teacher. <laughs> they got that slut. Well, love is love, and Erskine May doesn't lay down what one should do in this. It's, well, it's up to the discretion of the member, and she makes my member feel warm and lovely, so... <laughs> Too far, too far, okay. Um, but he's very, very good at it. Uh, one of the other big stories, of course, affecting one of his friends, Nigel Farage, has, has had his bank account closed. And again, he took to GB News to talk about this. Now, if you haven't watched this particular bit of GB News, you have to watch it. Go home tonight and type it into YouTube because he is so emotional. And he's straight down the barrel of the camera and goes, two years ago, I was told that my bank account would be closed. Well, they've gone and done it. He's <laughs> trying to present a TV show while I'm literally welling up at the eyes. I contacted seven other banks. They all said no. It's almost like he might as well say, there's nothing I love more in this world than money. And that's trying to take it away from me. And then he, he even goes into detail, which I think is incredible. He says, it may be, of course, political. It may be prejudice. And of course... I know prejudice well. <laughs> that doesn't sound how you thought that was going to come out, mate. I mean, he was welling up so much at the eyes. It was like that Schofield interview. I thought Amal Rajan was going to pop up. 
It's this one bit where it's just sort of on like a consumerist rant. He goes, I contacted a fintech company. They offered me a cash exchange mechanism. But of course, it's not a bank again. <laughs> <laughs> What's mad is, hearing him talk, he talks about everything in that Farage way. I wanted a bank account, they closed it. Like, you talk about this all day. Of course I'm going to the shop. I'm going to get milk and apples. But I got to Tesco and they didn't have any apples. I went to seven other supermarkets and they all said no. <laughs> so I feel oddly sorry for him. He was getting so emotional about it. I mean, you do hope that when his account was closed, I hope the bank had a bit of fun with it. Whoever had to make that phone call, the pleasure you'd have taken from it. Now, I'm afraid, Mr. Farage, we are ending um, free movement of your financial products, yeah. <laughs> of course I'll do the other shot. Fuck up, right, yeah. No, no, no that was no one. No, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, it's simple. No, we're just taking back control of our client portfolio. <laughs> now, that is our final answer. I, I'm afraid leave means leave. <laughs> but no, uh, no luck, apparently. Um, of course, Rishi Sunak went to Ikea last week, uh, presumably for the first time ever, to talk to some of their staff. I mean, can you imagine him in an Ikea? Billy Bookcase. Does he work here? Yeah, sounds like... <laughs> what a great name! <laughs> he gave a speech to a load of guys in high-vis jackets about the economy, and it has to... I can't believe this didn't get more coverage. Some of the things he says in this speech are completely reckless. And he starts off, and he goes, look, I know a lot of you are worried about inflation and interest rates. And I just want you to know, I'm on it 100%. It's going to be okay. We've got this. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I mean, like, re reassuring people is one thing. You might as well go, you know what, if I was you, I would take that holiday. Borrow a load of money, take it down the bookies. <laughs> Calm people, don't, like, tell them that everything's going to be fine if you can't deliver on that. And then he goes, um, look, I mean, lots of countries are grappling with interest rates. Countries all over the world, loads of them. Uh, Australia, Canada, uh, you know, loads more. Literally can't name any more than two. Not hugely reassuring when he's the one in charge of the speech. And then he goes, we're going to deal with this by rooting out inflation. Rooting out? He's not a young offender. When we get hold of inflation and give it a bloody good talking to... I'm convinced that a short, sharp shock is just what inflation needs. Two weeks in a boiler suit and we'll never see it again. He says something even worse. He then he has this terrible tick of just sort of chatting to himself mid-speech. He goes, so why does inflation matter, right? Yeah, like, why does it matter to me? Uh, it's because it's simple. It's simple. What inflation does, it eats into the pound in your pocket. It's that simple. I think that's the worst explanation of inflation I've ever heard. Made out it's simple. You see loads of people going, uh, is that it? Because, of course, he couldn't actually tell the truth to a room full of manual labourers. He couldn't stand there and go, I'll tell you what inflation is. It means your food price is going up. Then you can't afford the food. Maybe then you have to make the heartbreaking choice between heating and eating. Doesn't affect me. Might affect you. You can't go on holiday for five years. Your kids' futures are fucked. So it's that simple. So I, like, fob them off with a shit... Also, why the sort of evangelical... I'll tell you what inflation means to me. <laughs> what? <laughs> what inflation means to... The same to all of us. Our prices are going up. It's not like some sort of quest. I'll tell you what inflation means to me. Because when I was growing up, I hadn't actually encountered inflation. <laughs> but I heard about the last Tory government and what they did with interest rates and inflation, and I thought, I want to grow up and fuck the economy as well. <laughs> 
Thanks to you, I have. He then says, uh, I mean, he, he sort of just t- chats away to himself in front of these like befuddled IKEA staff. And he goes, Who wouldn't want to cut taxes? Well, have you met the Labour Party? <laughs> no, big Labour crowd tonight. Okay. <laughs> Received and understood. There goes all the Keir Starmer material I had prepared. Um, He then gets into... Oh, man. He then starts dropping his T's and using words he would never use in another audience. So he starts going, well, look, bills all come down, by the way, by about 430 quid, mind you lie. I bet that's the first time he's ever said quid. Yeah, I know what you guys just want. You know, a couple of... Ched, bit of beer tokens for the weekend, Yeah. Go out, whack a couple of grams, come back with a bit in your skyrocket. I get you, guys. A load of changed-up manual labourers. I understand it. I've never seen him look so awkward. And then the question-and-answer session does not help. Because there's a bit where someone goes, uh, yeah, my nan had to wait 45 minutes for an ambulance. My mum's still on a waiting list for an operation. What's going on? And he goes... Yeah, I mean, look, waiting lists are too long and there are too many people on them. And there's, you know, one reason for that. And it's one word. COVID. And you're like, there is another word. (laughs) Wrong reason for that. One word. Tories. (laughs) I'm surprised no one shouted it out when he did it. But then, it's just the way that he will, that thing. He then, even when they're asking him questions, they'll say, what about the NHS? He go, well, what it's actually about is, you know, can I get an operation when I need it? No, 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 that wasn't the question. He's like the sort of amazing self-interviewing man. I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to ask me a question. It's that simple. I'm going to ask myself a separate question that I actually want to answer and want to answer that. Now, why do I do that? Because I'm a fucking arsehole. (laughs) So frustrating watching him. And then he sort of realises he answered this guy's question. Goes back to him, live on telly, and in front of all his colleagues, and goes, "Um, what what operation was she waiting for? Actually, don't tell me that. What were you going to do there? <laughs> like, halfway through, was like, even, I, even Rishi Sunak realised Rishi Sunak was being an idiot. <laughs> Fuck me! Well, imagine that. Uh, colostomy bank. Okay, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> no good answer would have come out of that. Absolutely at all. Um, and then some guy there uh, says, uh, I'm here with the uh, IKEA Future Leaders Programme. And uh, on behalf of them, I'd just like to ask you, how do your core values inform your leadership style? And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, you tell me. (laughs) No, no. I mean, at least he could have got a joke out of it and gone, lesson one, delegate. (laughs) Didn't have the presence of mind to do it. So then these uh, IKEA future leaders are like forced to tell the prime minister about leadership. And one of them goes, uh, well, I think the most important thing is to be relatable. And you literally see the f- smile drop. Is that relatable? Yeah, fuck yourself, mate. We're going to habitat in the future, you bastard. And then what he tries to do is such a trick as well. One of the goes about relatable. And what he then goes is, I get what you're all saying. It's about integrity, right? And that's how I run my government. Like, not a single one of them talks about integrity. Let's try and like, do a mind trick on them, mate. None of them said that. What do you guys think leadership's about? I think it's about being relatable. I think it's about helping those people in your team that perhaps aren't the most vocal but do need the help. Yeah, I think you're right. It's about stopping the boats. So I think we just need to... <laughs> Try and fool me, mate. I'm not a fucking idiot. <laughs> on, uh, on the small boat issue, of course, Boris Johnson has waded in, sadly not to the channel, but to the, uh, <laughs> to the issue. And... Uh, 
the most predictable thing, his phrase on the video, I say, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to get Rwanda done. Oh, fuck. He's going to be changing that catchphrase for the rest of his life. He's the most unimaginative, dull bastard British politics has ever been. Yeah, well, yes, uh, dinner time. Yeah, we'll get sausages done. Yeah, uh, yeah. Play your cards right, we'll get boobies done. Yeah. No, too far, okay. No boobies, no lefty stuff. Received and understood. Uh, <laughs> Of course, it's not just on GB News where politicians pop up. You may have seen at Glastonbury, lots of Labour politicians were there <clears throat> in the left field tent. If you've ever been to Glastonbury, you'll know it's one of the major stages at Glastonbury is a tent where left-wing political debate happens. Now, uh, I love Glastonbury. I love festivals. I realise Glastonbury has left-wing roots. The thought of going to Glastonbury and watching a political debate <laughs> fills me with deep horror. Who the fuck is going to Glastonbury? I mean, no one is there, are they? Going, fuck out and off, man. Ed Miliband starts in five minutes. <laughs> Why on earth would you go? I mean, imagine you'd actually gone to watch Ed Miliband. You'd come back from that and th- you'd, th- you'd have had a bad trip or something. Man, t- t- I didn't do acid. You did acid. Tell them what happened to you on the Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. I went to see the Arctic Monkeys and then sort of changed into this thing. I seem to remember Ed Miliband talking about the environment for an hour and a half. I mean, Ed Miliband does look like he's permanently coming up on a pill, actually. Sort of... <laughs> Sounds like he's all, yeah, it's great to meet you guys. <laughs> God, that guy's fucking mangled. <laughs> he, uh... <laughs> but he was there. I mean, to be fair, I'm saying all this. Five minutes into the Arctic Monkeys, I did think, I wonder if Ed Miliband's still on. <laughs> Rather catch the end of that, I think. But, um... You never get right-wingers at Glastonbury, do you? I mean, you can't imagine, like, Farage running in the troops there. No, 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 I agree with the white guy with dreads at the end. The banking system is an absolute disgrace. <laughs> they all said no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Because um, you never see that on the iPlayer either, do you? You know, if you've been to Glastonbury, no, left-wing politics is a huge part of it. The BBC claims to cover everything that, the, that Glastonbury has to offer. It never includes that. They've got on BBC Sounds and on the iPlayer, on digital and tablet, the greatest headline sets, Lizzo, Elton John, Richard Bergen. <laughs> I feel like they should... Oh, what a set list for Diane Abbott. I mean, she got it in the wrong order, but it was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Well, what a phenomenal guest we have this evening. Um, In the last few months, I've deliberately tried to book people who aren't just elected politicians, people who are political activists in their own right and in their own way. And tonight's guest is someone I've known for a very long time. And uh, we've gigged together over the years, and he's always been a phenomenal star. But not just that, as you would imagine from seeing him on TV, and I'm sure live, one of the nicest people I've ever met in comedy. And he's genuinely politically interested. He's a fascinating guy. Of course, he's a massive talent, and he uses his platform to advocate for people in society who don't have a voice, people around the world who don't have a voice. And on top of that, he's one of the best comedians this country has produced. Please raise the roof for the phenomenal Joe Lysett! <laughs> Hello, hello. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> That's very nice. It's a bit much. I found that a bit much. I, I think, think Philip Hammond got more. Yeah. 
Quite right. I listened to that one. I, I am a huge fan of this podcast. I was telling you this. Like, I listened to it. I listened to it in the gym. I, that wasn't meant to be funny. I'm trying to get ripped. Do I look... Yeah. yeah. In a way. And just... Ignore the lesions there that are... Jim's um, full of vampires. We, what the fuck happened there? Yeah, I know. It's weird, isn't it? I get these arm spots, and then they just sort of vanish after a while. I've got one there, and they scar. But there's no... Is this what you wanted from me on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Let's discuss the arm spots. <laughs> that's, my, that's the big policy I want to talk about, is the arm spot policy. You don't I know, get I'm a huge fan, and I love this podcast, and I'm really honoured to be on it, and I've got some thoughts. Uh, and, uh, but, yeah, it's... Um, See, this is, I would say, my favourite of your works, but a close second is your appearance in the Two Bears video, <laughs> The Bear Hug, which I recommend... Do you remember this? I do remember it, yeah. Do you remember the song Bear Hug? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a banger. Guy. It's a banger. It goes, want to give you a bear hug. Yeah. Does that make... Not the audience, not the crowd. Okay, fine. Um, there's an, an amazing music video in which maps. And that, that was when I saw that you'd done that. I was like, he's made it. <laughs> he's done it. And um, you play a like a kind of morning TV host. Yeah. And you're on a boat, and you introduce a sort of quite erotic dance. Yes. About the bear hugs. Yeah. It's so um, the two bears. One of them was in. One of them was in hot chip. I didn't know uh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. So it's cool. It's cool music. And um, the video was actually filmed at Fatboy Slim's house. No. In Brighton. Yeah, it was amazing. But it's on a boat. Oh, is it green? You want it to was, There's a bit... Well, the, just the, he is, his house is on the seafront. Oh, I so see. So his balcony overlooks the sea, so that's why it looks like the bow of a ship. Wow. Uh, I'm so glad I came on your show. Um, <laughs> because I've always wanted to talk about this. But, yeah, I play a kind of Maidley-esque... I'm trying yeah. to, there's a lyric in it which is something like, I've seen you round a bit, I don't want to grab your tit, want to yeah. give you a bear hug. That's right. I, yeah. <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> it's really... I want to grab your tit. I think it's something like that. <laughs> but what, what, did that just come through your agent? You went, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> or or were you, had you... Had you come up with the idea for the video? Or what? I, I heard that lyric and begged to be in the video. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, that's really my my sort of thing. Matt Ford, that's what he's always after. He doesn't want to grab a tit, wants to give you a bear. <laughs> but you can find it on YouTube. I mean, it, the song is good. I had no involvement on that yeah. side of it. Obviously, it's a banger. It's a banger. Love it. Yeah. It but yeah, amazing. so I'm I'm a, a big fan, and I do love the podcast. Yeah. Um, oh. I, the last one that I listened to is the Margaret Beckett one, which I loved. But halfway through, I did realise she sounds like Kim Woodburn. <laughs> and I found that very distracting for the rest of it. Distracting in what way? Well, I was just waiting for her to go, you horrible little bitch! Like that. <laughs> About someone, I don't know, pretty or something, I don't know. Um, yeah, but I loved that one. Philip Hammond I enjoyed, but a bit dull towards the end. Um, <laughs> Uh, what else? Um, which other ones have you done recently? I, do, why do you book Jacob Rees-Mogg? Because I always think he's a great guest. Yeah, that's what he wants you to think. Yeah, <laughs> but he's he's interesting, isn't he? I don't, I don't, I would never just want to book people that I agreed with. And I am yeah. fascinated by people who've risen to a particular level in politics. Yeah. And I'm interested in anyone who 
seeks election or gets elected. Yes. And I would never want to just restrict it to the people that I think are basically acceptable. I'm always yeah. want to challenge myself. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want us to grab his tit. <laughs> and I, I thought there was a strong chance that it might happen. Um, but you are the guest. Uh, and I remind, Shit. remind the honourable gentleman <laughs> that it's my job to ask the questions and it's his job to okay. answer them, Mr Speaker. So, um, often when you're on interview programmes, it does cause a bit of a stir. Obviously, um, Laura Koonsberg... I don't know what you're referring <laughs> to. <laughs> so the moment where... So it, was Liz Truss still in the studio when you said that you were very right-wing and you liked it? She scarpered pretty quick. <laughs> so what, they, they've got a new studio to do it in, I, believe, I think it's new, and there's cameras that are sort of Daleks on these sort of tracks. Yes. So there's no... There's some people that kind of keep an eye on them, but there's, it's quite a sort of small thing, really. And I was in position... Um, who was next to me? Uh, there's Cleo Watson there. Is it... Um, Thorn, Emily, Emily Thornbury. Thornbury, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> and, um, and then Laura's obviously sort of getting her head together, and so she was there, and, but she was really calm and really collected, and I was so impressed by her in just the amount that's going on for her, and I know how difficult it is with an earpiece, and she's got that, but also having to sort of juggle being balanced and all that. It's like really, it's such an impressive thing that she does. And then, and then walks, they both came in together, Rishi and... Liz in front of me, and I said, Hello! And I just sort of shouted it across the room because I, I think I was angry and I just wanted to sort of yeah. get some sort of noise out rather than, Fuck up! Like, I just wanted to say, like, Hello! Like I just wanted some noise had to come out of me and I've been brought up well so it had to be polite. Um, I believe I shined Rishi's shoes for him and then they sort of sat there and he went, to, like that, because he's sort of like, like a sort of little puppy, isn't he? He's really sort of enthusiastic. And, um, and she sat there, not like a puppy. And, um, and, uh, and then, then we were sort of live. It was as quick as that. And then I didn't... I, 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 what I'd planned was... I hadn't really planned anything up until the morning of it, because I'd rung a few people, and uh, they'd all just said, just say what you feel, really, mm. and, and people will resonate with people. And I th- as I was driving there, I thought, well, I'm not a... I don't do punditry. That's not what I do. I do take the piss out of people on Twitter. That's, what I, that's sort of <laughs> in a sarcastic way. And I was thinking on the drive there, I thought, well, actually, that might be quite fun to do. But I hadn't written any gags for it. I hadn't sort of prepped anything. That was just sort of like a general thought of like how to approach it. And then, and then once they started speaking... I've thought about this. If I was ever in a room with Donald Trump or Boris or like anyone that I really despise, I don't think I, I don't know how I'd. I think I'd be sort of suffocated by it. I had a half version of this when I, I went on the News Agents. Sorry to mention a rival podcast. And um, finished my. I'm interview. flattered. You think I'm a rival there? So. <laughs> you, you are. You are. Um, uh, and I finished my interview, and they opened the door, and it was um, Rachel Johnson had opened the door to introduce some... I don't know why she was there, but I, I was... Because of the proximity to Boris, I was sort of... That anger arose, and then I thought, well, she's not really... She's not him, and she might defend him, and but it's not... The, so I just sort of ignored her and just didn't say anything. But if it had been Boris, I don't know what I'd do, because I, I'm, I'm sure he gets people shouting stuff at him all the time, and he's, he's very nimble, and he knows how to kind of work his way... And I just don't think I'd be effective, and I think I would just become small and scared, actually. I think I'd be, particularly with Trump, I'd just be frightened. And so 
I, hadn't, I couldn't work out what my energy was really on that show because I was so angry, but I was so, like, I felt there was an opportunity. And I thought, maybe I'll throw something? I just really, you know, there's so, so many things going through my head of, like, what do you do? And, um, and so I applauded, basically. That's what I just... My brain just came out and just sort of started to applaud what Liz had said. And she got up, and she had a similar mic pack onto the one that you've got here, and she sort of got up, and the mic pack was in the chair, and she sort of fumbled with that. And then Laura was having a panic attack as I was applauding and walking over. She said afterwards that when I started applauding, her heart sank. <laughs> and, then, and then she sort of realised what I was doing, and she sort of could work round it, but she was OK with it. But... Um, she said on the day. I mean, we've not heard from her since. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, it, 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 I didn't think it was like that... You know, it wasn't that well thought out. I didn't think it was that big a deal, really. I just thought... I was just taking the piss. I'm a comic, that's what I was doing. Yeah. And I think maybe they're not used to people taking the piss in that way. I think they were maybe expecting me to do sort of Radio 4-style gags that would be very sort of acceptable. Yes. And, and I just was an idiot. <laughs> Well, no, it was the elegance of it was what was so devastating, was you didn't do what people expect a left-wing comedian on a thing to do. Yeah. You went the other way, and it sort of stumped them. And I just So when you'd done it, do you immediately feel like, oh, I've been naughty? Yeah. And, and, and do people react like you've been naughty? Or do they just sort of carry on? What was the atmosphere like afterwards? Well, you would expect that they, people wouldn't look me in the eye and all that. But there was, uh, straight afterwards, there was a, um, a kind of... Uh, celebration speech from a few of the producers to say well done on the first show and Laura said a few words whatever and then we were taken to this sort of brunch that they have in the BBC canteen which is no brunch <laughs> I mean, I've been to some drag brunches it's not a brunch um, and they put me next to Laura and then next to her was Rishi who I hadn't spoken to at any point and still haven't because I was so cross I was like I just if I speak to him I wouldn't I don't know what I'll do. Um, so it was just Laura, and then opposite me was Cleo and Emily Thornbury and some of the producers, and uh, Will Wood, who does my PR, and a great friend of mine, and a few other people around. And um, uh, Laura's lovely, and she was like, we're looking to get regulars on, and, you know, if you want to come back, like, we'd love to have you. And I, and I was going, yeah, great. <laughs> she's there going, I get it. Um, um, and, yeah, it was just bizarre. I just had some porridge and fucked off, basically. <laughs> but they were, they were all really nice to me. They all, and, like, the, all the producers were saying, oh, yes, we'd love to have you back and whatever. But I don't... I don't at that point, I don't think they'd thought what... Because the then it was front page of the Daily Mail. It hadn't kicked off at that point. Yeah. You know what I'm really surprised by? The fact that Rishi Sunak went to, like, the brunch afterwards. Well, you have to remember, at that point, he wasn't going to become Prime Minister, and he was just <laughs> pissing about, really, wasn't he? So, <laughs> But do, was, did he try and make small talk with you at all? No, well, he didn't get anywhere near me, so... He, well, he got near me via... Laura was my sort of... Um, Translator. Condom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the barrier between me, <laughs> between me and Sunak. Um, so, I, no, I, no point. I sort of observed him, but I didn't speak to him. Okay. Um, and happily, really. And what was your... What was, because comedians can be very astute people at reading people quickly and, and getting an assessment of him. Having seen him at very close quarters, yeah. what was your assessment of his character or personality? He seems quite, like, nice and amiable and sort of, uh, you know, a, 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 a passing as a human being. <laughs> the lizard is hidden. <laughs> um, 
he just seemed like he just seemed like a geek, really, like just sort of like trying to sort of like chat to people and a bit nervous and a bit sort of. I'm sure if I met him at a party and didn't know anything about him, I'd be like, oh, he's all right. But I'd know lots about him, but I don't think he's all right. So that's the thing. And I, you know, it would. I think if I got talking to him, I'd feel there'd be a battle, an internal battle of like, this is a nice, polite man, and you've been taught to be polite, but you disagree with so many of the things that this person has done. And I don't, I don't quite know how I would cope with that, really. So I just thought, I've had the stress of the live TV show, I'll just eat my porridge. <laughs> so then, when it does kick up, what is the first moment you realise it, it's gone viral? Uh, I went for a drink with Will afterwards and um, his wife and kids. So I went to uni with Will and his wife and... Um, I didn't go to uni with his kids. Um, <laughs> what a confusing setup that would have been. Um, and we were just in the pub and looking on Twitter and it was just um, trending, basically it was trending. And the clip, had, someone had clipped it up and it was sort of doing quite a lot of numbers very quickly on, on Twitter. Um, and it was when... Uh, yeah, like sort of political commentators and whatever started talking about it and either saying they liked it or didn't like it, whatever. I thought, oh, I've sort of... I've done something here. Um, but I, yeah. I still don't to this day really know what I did. Like, I don't... I, I don't... I can't really measure it against anything else, so I don't... I think I just took the piss. But, like, Ben Elton was on it recently and that he, he just sort of said what he felt and that seemed to kind of fire people. I think when sort of generally left leaning people say left-leaning things on that show. I think some people on Twitter particularly see it as a bit of a victory because they don't feel like they're represented all, all the time, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So that, that they grasp onto it and go, oh, Ben Elton said something about Rishi that re we resonate with. We'll retweet it and get it high in the, sort of, in the stats. But, um, but when that happens to you, do you think, oh, my God, this is great, job done. You know, I went on there effectively to take the piss and this is the ultimate win yeah. or is that it, do you have any sense of anxiety do you think oh god i can't bear oh, to be massively well talked about i had well. i had a panic attack in the car on the, i drove myself home and i had a panic attack in the car on the way home but that's not like unusual for me i do have panic attacks so it wasn't like uh, i have less and less these days so i've had good therapy but i definitely had like a wave of like oh god you know, in over my head you know sort of um, didn't really know what i'd done um, but then I, generally, when I'm having a panic attack, I sort of know that it's because I've done something that I'll later be quite proud of. So <laughs> I just sort of go, ride this out. You've, done, you've put yourself in danger and you've enjoyed it. Um, but this is a natural response to that. Um, yeah, but I definitely, yeah, the M40 probably wasn't safe at one point when I was on it later that, later that day. Because it, it felt like the story ran for ages. There was a lot of earnest comment about comedians should not be allowed on shows like this, mm. or whatever it is. And how intense was that for you in terms of like the day-to-day -day reality? Like, were, were people ringing you up? Did you have reporters outside your house? No, none of that, no. Uh, I didn't know. I was back home in Birmingham by the time the front page of the mail was announced and I was on the sofa, and I think I was about, about to go to bed, and it, it sort of, someone sent it to me, and I was like, fuck is this? <laughs> like, it's so not news, you know, it's just sort of so not, uh, and I found it really funny, I was like, I thought that was amazing, and I've got it, I've got it framed in a massive gold frame. <laughs> um, I'm really proud of it, I'm thrilled about it. Um, but it, it's daft that it got that, to that point, but I can see why, because I think in that week, There'd been a gag on Have I Got News For You that they were, they were sort of bludgeoning the BBC 
about that yeah. and it kind of fit within the kind of trajectory of what they were talking about. Um, so I can sort of see why if you were insane like you might be if you worked at the Daily Mail, that, that would go, ah, oh, yes, <laughs> the insane structure that I've put together of my own normality, this fits, actually. Let's put him on the front page. There wasn't a picture. I was annoyed about that. It was Sue Barker. Piss off. <laughs> <laughs> Who, incidentally, I remembered, she, I went to Wimbledon once and she gave me a birthday, because it's my birthday on the 5th of July, and she gave me a birthday cake at Wimbledon. That's so cool. There's a showbiz story for you. <laughs> Never mind the Coonsberg thing. Um, yeah, uh, what was I talking about? The, the mail. Yeah, yeah, the, I was surprised by... Lots of people were sort of saying... Like, James O'Brien did a whole thing on his programme the next day about how I was like a sort of genius, and I, I really found that a very flattering, but I thought, no. Uh, <laughs> opportunist is probably the best. And I was trying to sell tickets. I was there to promote the tour that I was on, so it wasn't like... Some grand, like, I will show the politicians what I know. I was like, literally there to vlog tickets. I was doing arenas. They weren't going very far, particularly Newcastle. Just trying to get the sales up. Um, it was all very sort of self-interested, really. Um, but, yeah, there were some political kind of commentators and, or, or people that work in political TV that were kind of a bit nasty about it, really. And I sort of felt, uh, I felt like they shouldn't really... They were pointing a lot at me, and I thought, well... Your, your argument really is against the bookers, and it sort of felt like they were attacking me, and I, just, I thought that was a bit... Ugh, you know, I just I thought... Uh, I felt that was unkind, I suppose. But it's politics, isn't it? So I'm, I'm, I'm in the viper's nest now, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, because then the other element is then you get... Your name crops up at the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee. Oh, that was great fun. I mean, that's like... <laughs> that's like the, uh, short of being asked at Prime Minister's questions, that's yeah. like... The holy yeah, grail. Yeah. You're so close to Rishi Sunak having to yeah. answer a question about Steve Joe Steve Bryan. <laughs> what a name. I, like, if I hadn't called Richard Utree Richard Utree, I would have called him <laughs> Steve Bryan. Because it sounds like a made-up person. Yeah. And he... I think he called me the... Joe Lysett debacle or something like that. That's right. Oh, get that on the gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> um... And it was, yeah, the B- heads of the BBC, Tim Davey and Richard Sharp. Yes. And they were defending the BBC. And I love the BBC. I've worked for the BBC. I think it's a brilliant institution. Uh, but I did love that they were having to, like, field questions about it and try and sort of manoeuvre around, well, it's, uh, we should be booking people of all different... Ty- like, all of that stuff that they were doing. Uh, clearly going, <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. Uh, he was... Steve Bryan was not happy about me, but... Um, good. <laughs> salty old chap, isn't he? Steve he is Bryan. a salty um, chap, Steve Bryan. He's gone now, isn't he? I wonder what he'll do. Oh, he's still alive. <laughs> um, Once but... you've left the Tory party, you're as good as dead, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> but when you're being discussed in those sorts of places... Yeah. I mean, your family and friends are obviously used to you being on telly a lot, being famous and stuff... That is a different experience, yeah. though. Like, do they love it? Do they worry about you? They worry, really. Well, they like it, but they do worry, because it it's not my world, I suppose, and, and it feels sort of grown up. But they think they... I found all of it funny, so they were just sort of checking in, but generally, because I was finding it funny, they were OK with it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it wasn't... I wasn't... I, I, I think I had that thing on, uh, and I was in my studio, I was making some pottery... <laughs> Um, I was making pottery, I can't remember. I was doing something sculptural. 
and it was just on in the background and it was just so weird because my studio is just quiet and I just make art in there and then to have like this my name come up in this thing I was it was it was a very surreal experience and I'm not sure I like it I mean it's, it feels like a kind of thuggish world politics it feels like there's a lot of people lying about each other using whatever little thing they can and I know that sort of happens in the press and in show business and all sorts of things but I feel I'm sort of slightly out of show I don't really go to things I don't like to go to show busy parties particularly whatever I just hang out with my pals in Birmingham most of the time getting drunk in barks so I don't I'm not used to that sort of like well he said this and actually you yeah. know, like I sort of I, I, I felt like it's not a world I really want to be part of and it's not a world that I trust to make sound decisions apart from Brexit of course and <laughs> all of the other decisions they've made but it sort of feels like um yeah I, 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 it feels ugly to me as a space because you're obviously highly socially aware and use your platform to 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 talk about the things that you care about is it ludicrous to say that in a parallel world you might have sought elected office or, or gone into some form of activism? And does that experience then make you go, I am absolutely never doing it? No, I don't think... I mean, the, the ego in me goes like, I will be king! But <laughs> I, I don't... The reality of it would be a nightmare for me. I don't think I'd function well in that at all. I, I, don't, I don't know what the right thing to do is most of the time. I sort of generally believe the last thing I read. Oh, that sounds about right. Mein Kampf, correct. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, what, you could put something in front of me and I generally go, oh, there's some sound arguments there. And so I, I'm, I don't trust myself to make the right decisions. And I find that fascinating about politicians, that they're so like, this is what is the right thing to do. And I think, who told you? How do you know? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the right thing to have to breakfast is. I don't, I, I, I sort of, so I don't trust myself in it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Really? So then when you highlight specific issues like the World Cup in Qatar, yes. um, maybe highlighting a single issue is a bit easier? LGBT stuff I get a lot more clear on because yeah. essentially most of that is will I be killed or not? <laughs> and generally I prefer to not be killed. <laughs> so I go, yeah, people like me, I don't want to be killed. I can make a, <laughs> yes, I know what the right and wrong thing is there. Um, so that was quite simple for me really, yeah. But, but when you then raise that, obviously then people are always going to say, well, you gigged in Qatar. Yes. Once, you know, well, you, were, did. you were on a mixed bill in Qatar. I was, yeah. yeah. Like, as if that somehow invalidates your view on whether they should host a major tournament. Or yeah. Well, I, this is sort of what I was saying about, like, they kind of find a little thing and they go, well, 
we've got you now, you fucked you. And I at no point uh, hid that, and at no point did I feel that I'd... I still think that was the right thing to do, because what I was complaining about, the Beckham thing, was a different thing. At no point did I say that I didn't think the players should go, I didn't think that people shouldn't go and watch the football. I never said any of those things. What I was very clear about is that he was taking money from the Qatari government to promote Qatar, which is a very different thing to seeing the world and seeing... And uh, H from Steps recently just... Um, <laughs> coming to my defence here. Um, turned down a gig in Dubai because they said that he, uh, they couldn't talk about sexuality. And I thought that was... Great. I thought that was that's the right thing to do there because he couldn't he couldn't be himself. But I was when I went to Qatar, I did my stand up and I thought it was a good thing to go out there and perform as me as an openly bisexual pansexual person and do my material to those people. And obviously, it was within the confines of the hotel and whatever. But I wasn't censored at those gigs, and so I'd do it again. I think that's I think that's the right thing to do <clears throat> to take money from that government yes. that persecutes gay people is a completely different thing and I think he's wrong and that's why I did what I did. And those gigs, I mean, they're basically to expats anyway, aren't they? They're like, you're always at the Brick Club in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, I mean, it was... It, I was told that there might be... That they, they, they said um, there might be sort of, sort of people floating around that might be observing, is I think what they said. Oh. So there was a sort of sense of, like, be careful. Because that was quite a long time. It was like ten years ago that you did yeah, it. Yeah, a long time. Yeah, yeah. So this is before you were big. Yeah, it was just a. It was a. It was a, a gig. Yeah, it was like any other. I mean, I hadn't done loads of foreign gigs. I think I did one in somewhere in Spain and, and one in Nice. And yeah, but it was just a club gig, basically. But is that quite unsettling to not? You know, you're a newer act or, or, or a sort of less famous actor than you're on a mix bill in a foreign country, and you're told actually there be people milling about observing you. Yeah. It was scary. And we did one in Bahrain, and they said, don't leave the hotel. And I immediately left the <laughs> hotel. Because I wanted to see... I went, I went to the... There was, like, a market nearby. I had to wander around, and yeah. I felt fabulous. They are all coming after me. Like, sort of... It's like being in a gay club. They were all after me. It's wonderful. I think it's, it's good to see the world. It's good to yeah. sort of interact... Because people are people, and actually, when you sort of see them up front and in, in, in person, generally... Like I said with Rishi, like, generally, I probably find lots to connect about. I'm annoyed about lots that he's done, and that's why I'm sort of annoyed that I didn't engage with him, I suppose. But I think if you can, it's good to be around people, and you'll find... I, th I think that's what Birmingham's particularly good at, is there's all sorts of different cultures and different people together, and it's sort of... It works. Not all the time, obviously, but <laughs> largely it works, and I think that's important. And did Beckham's people ever get in touch and say, look, can you just stop slagging him off? Or is that, he's all right? Or have they ever said, look, there's another side to this, Joe? Yeah, um, they, well, they, they were silent until they gave a statement. They gave a statement to the programme, uh, which was something along the lines of, um, it's good that we're having conversations. It was, something, it was a bit sort of Trump's, there's good, good arguments on every both side, sides, kind of yeah. both sides. Um, so I didn't really buy that as a statement. But um, no, they didn't reach out, and I've not heard from any of from Beckham or any of his people since. I have heard that a friend of mine went to some dinner and he was sat next to Beckham's manager or someone and they were having, a, he says, a nightmare for a week or so while it was all happening and lots of internal calls, which is exactly what I was after, so yeah. good. But I don't, I don't hold a grudge. I'm, not, I'm kind of over it. Like, I'm not going to go at him again. I, like, I'm done. I've, sort of, I've said what I wanted to say about it. I've made, I think I've made my point. Yeah. But I don't... Um, I don't 
I'm sure he is brilliant. He does, he's done lots of brilliant things. And I just, the goal against Greece? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think that's um, the only one thing I can think of. But yeah. uh, oh, the, the one against Colombia as well, that was good. Yeah. Um, but it must be quite satisfying to have a platform, to use it to create ripples and to, to see those sort of ripples ripple out. Yeah, I mean... I definitely felt that was the biggest I'd done, and that was, like, global news, and people were texting me from Brazil and stuff, saying, like, you're on the news here, and uh, that was all, like, whoa. And I, I, I still feel a bit um, uh, sort of reticent to go again on, on anything, because it's really... It's, you are putting your head up, and, like, it, people will go for it. And... Um, I want a quiet life, really. <laughs> but then I get annoyed about it, and I sort of think, well, what's the point of me if it's not to sort of go use the platform to do something? I don't, I, yeah. I, I, I read a tweet a while ago, which was about, like, for all the kind of major issues in life, we've reached well beyond the raising awareness point. And I thought that was really interesting, because that's sort of all I do, is just sort of try and raise awareness. And I thought, is it sort of pointless to do what I'm doing, and should I just... Should I just do a load of corporate gigs and just like <laughs> shag a load of prostitutes and <laughs> join the Tory party? But um, I d- something, something stops me from doing those things, yeah. and I don't know what it is. But I don't think you ever are beyond raising awareness. There's always someone else who hasn't heard the argument. There's yeah. always someone new. There's always a new generation of people that need to hear the argument again or need to hear it for the first time. I think. Speaking of joining the Tory party, I had an idea of <laughs> being a major donor to them so that I could go to their dinners. But do you know what the threshold is? Oh, God. What, for, for like, the black and white dinner? At the yeah, Dorchester? yeah. It's, I mean, I, it'd, it'd be a lot, I'd have thought. Yeah. Do you, know what the fre- do you know the threshold? No, I about? don't. Does anyone know what the threshold it's is? It's got to be five figures plus, hasn't it, for that? You think? Yeah. OK. Maybe if you... <laughs> <laughs> do you want know to... I think... You could do a crowdfunder. <laughs> I, I, I think they would, like... Happily take your money. Yeah, that's the problem. And let you that's sit the there bit and the idea yeah. that hasn't I've solved that because I'd be giving money to them. Wouldn't I? And you know what they'd say if they won? Let's say they won the next election by one seat. They'd say Joe Lysett paid for that seat. <laughs> Those leaflets were funded by Joe Lysett. Good old Joe Lysett. And then Another I'd have to do like a deep dive into the character <laughs> yeah. and go. I was actually joking all the times I said <laughs> that I was not right wing. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. <laughs> So when you say you're going to shred 10 grand of your own money, yeah. you obviously, ne- I'm guessing, you were never going to actually shred your own money. That no. was always going to be like fake cash. Yeah. So then, because you know when it called to mind a little bit, and I'm a huge fan of him, Darren Brown, and I love yeah. the idea that there are people in the public realm, and sort of David Blaine in a way, like, I'm going to do a big stunt. Yes. And tune in, and it's going to happen. I think, what? Yeah. I think this, we don't really have enough of that anymore. Yeah, I so love all that. Like, that's, it that's was great. Huge inspiration, really. Yeah, I love all that sort of public kind of madness, and everyone's going, he, he can, he can't, can he? And it, all that sort of debate around... I got this amazing... I sort of didn't read the whole thing because it's so long, but there's a, there's a whole society of people that destroy money, and that's their... Like, that morally they think it's the right thing to destroy money, and they were really excited by it and then so disappointed when I didn't, and, like... Like, this, it was so fascinating what was written about it and how kind of skewed it got and, like... Uh, the, the fact that I think uh, Julie Birchall wrote a piece about me in The Spectator, and I was like, what the fuck has happened? <laughs> that I'm in the, and she, she referred to me as gay, which I thought, well, I've got you there, Julie. Um, <laughs> Julia Hartley Brewer, maybe, was it? 
No, it's Julie Bircher. The writer? Yeah. It's Julie Bircher, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was her. Yeah, maybe it was Julie. No, Hartley Brewer. Yeah. I've avoided her ire thus far. <laughs> Won't take long, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, but did you think, like, little things? So, obviously, you've got the lovely uh, sort of... Um, the almost like coat. emu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Lovely um, well, uh, costume. Yeah, jacket, yeah, yeah. Peacock sort of jacket. Yeah. Did you think... Because, obviously, it's, what's really funny is it's just sort of a little small pile of money. Yeah, Did you so think about how big the pile should be? We, yeah, we looked into that, and it's... I think it's fives that we've... Fake fives that we put in. Well, actually, it was real fives that went in. It was fake fives. So it's a sort of the system was. It was all like properly thought. Actually, real money went in. Real, it's real money went because we were. You can't uh, have fake money that is the same size as real money legally. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it has to be either think it's twenty percent bigger or smaller, and we just thought someone will clock it that it's bigger or smaller. So it has to be real money going in, and then the magic (laughs) trick essentially is. The thing that comes out. It must have been a nervous moment, though. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying. And so, what I was looking that was at. meant for was... the Tory part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, yeah, it had like a kind, of, uh, a kind of block, essentially. And so, when the money went in, then there was a guy off to the side, the guy that had designed the whole thing, who had these two um, wireless remotes that would release the fake money into the shredder that would then be shredded. But obviously, you can't see that it's fake at that point, so it was all... I mean, if you'd really looked, it's not the same sort of paper, because real money's that sort of plasticky stuff now, whereas that was actual paper that came out, so it wouldn't actually shred in the way that a shredder... If you knew the shredder, you wouldn't... (laughs) But That's the thing. I thought everyone would go, oh, it's fake. But then the minute we did it, it was running... Most news, news outlets said, shreds 10 grand. They didn't say appears to it was like he's done it it's just another great victory though so do you think not that you would think this cynically about it or maybe you would every two years i need to do a stunt yeah well that's that's the problem now is that like i don't when i did that i'd had my last stand-up show which had a big stunt in it and i'd done a few other bits and bobs and right now other than trying to join the tory party <laughs> uh, i don't really have I don't have any ideas currently. I feel like the well is sort of quite dry. And I think I just need to get bored a bit and stuff will come. But I'm not putting that pressure on myself because I'm quite happy making art and doing stand-up and doing other stuff. So if it comes to me, it will. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm not, I don't feel that much of a pressure to do it. And I've been quite clear with Channel 4 that you can't expect the same thing from me every year because like, it's not... Who knows how these things are going to go? And I've been quite lucky in the way that they've gone. But there's lots of things that we've tried to do to try and get awareness to issues on uh, Got Your Back, my programme. And, and it's just not... And, I, and you'll think that people will be so passionate about this and it just gets lost and that's really frustrating. And it's just occasionally a few just sort of pop up and people go, oh, that is annoying, actually. And with... The art you make, obviously, stand-up is your primary focus and, and your career. Yeah, yeah. But you paint, as you say, you make pottery and all sorts of other things. When you were growing up and you were wanting to become a comedian, if that was your primary drive, did you think, oh, and I'd like to paint, I'd like to do these other things? Or are they kind of things that you've created the space for you to be able to do a bit later on? Well, I'd, uh, I didn't actually... Uh, I didn't really have a plan. I sort of don't now, I suppose. I'm a person without a plan. <laughs> That's why I can't be a politician. <laughs> I have no plan. I, I, was try, I was trying to... Uh, I was making little films when I was a kid and I was making little websites and I wanted to be an actor and I, I was 
trying to make music. I was doing lots of things, and it was stand-up that just sort of found its way through, really. So it was sort of the path of least resistance. But um, so, so no, really, it's, uh, there's, uh, there was no... It's just how, it's sort of how the cards have fallen, really. And for your family, is that unusual? Or is there any of that in your... Well, mum and dad met at art college, so they're creative. But mum worked at Cadbury's. She was some um, uh, Bourneville in Bourneville. Stinks of chocolate. What a great thing to stink of. Well, it is a great thing to stink of. But see, th- uh, this is possibly where I get some of my sort of activism from. Is that she worked for them? She liked working for them because they were a great sort of family company. Yeah. They uh, they did loads of things to kind of look after their workers. They're like houses for them. They built, yeah, and they were kind of. I think they're more, Mormons or Masons. I've sort of Quakers. Quakers. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why you like porridge. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they're Quakers, and so there's no pub in Bourneville. You can't buy alcohol there. And there's like some weird things about it, but they really looked after their workers. And then they were bought by Kraft, who then became Mondelez, and they very f- quickly said, oh, we won't be making any redundancies, everything will stay the same. A year later, loads of redundancies, fucked everyone over. And mum, when she had me and my sister, there was no, like, oh, we can... Um, uh, pregnancy, what is it? Mater- maternal... <laughs> oh, yeah, maternity Maternity leave. Leave. Um, <laughs> Maternal pregnancy, child comes out, child needs money, food. Um, child will die without money, food. Um, that one. And uh, so she just quit. She, she, she lost her pension, she lost everything because there was no option, so she quit. And then she went back on as a freelancer. And she was okay with that because they looked after her in other ways, like they kind of were a nice place to work, all of that. But then the minute Kraft came in, Mondelez, and they just sort of bulldozed through everything, and they changed the recipe of the cream egg, which is... A crime, I think. Because <laughs> they said, it's not the Cadbury cream egg, it's a cream egg. So they removed the Cadbury chocolate and put their shitty cheese chocolate in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no um, so she then like, went to them and basically said, well, I could do you now for not giving me my maternity leave back then, so what are you going to sort me out with? And like, really went up against the, the big company, and I don't know how much she got, but we drink champagne every night. <laughs> <laughs> glorious. Lovely cheesy champagne. <laughs> um, and Dad were d- designed shop fronts before I was born and then became a teacher when I was born because he was driving around too much, so he became a teacher in a comprehensive school. And um, they're both just sort of good... Mo- My next-door neighbour described them as proper grown-ups. They're just, like, <laughs> good moral people and, um, yeah, just good but, eggs. But you can see... Cream eggs. You can see the, you can see the seeds of you very much in all that, can't you? The sort of activism, uh, advocating for yourself, that belief in community and standing yeah. up, but also the creative side and all those things. I, yeah. It's not and too Aaron hard Brockovich to was really... I re-watched Aaron Brockovich recently, <laughs> and truly, I think, I watched that when I was in my, like, early teens, and I think it was really... I just... That scene when she offers them the water... <laughs> It came from Hinckley, and they go, oh. I, like, I want that moment. Like, I, want, I want to be Aaron Brockovich in that moment. Um, because it, yeah, it's a bloody good film, that. Yeah. Does it come with a bit of pressure what you're doing? Because you're not just a comedian; you are seen as, you know, a voice for the voiceless, and you're somebody who stands up for what they believe in. Do you get people approaching you wanting to, you to be more active on particular debates yeah. or, or more? Does, you, um, do you, presumably, you get that way. Like, can you lend your voice to things or whatever? And you do just have to sort of get strong about what you decide to do. And the thing is, is 
I, I try and be super legally watertight with everything I do. I don't want to do anything in a sort of unjournalistic way. I want to be really clear about what my argument is and all that. So there's lots of things that I just can't do. And then it's about not diluting it. So you want to be able to make an argument that people are going to listen to. And it's like, oh, not him again. Last week he was on this. And, and that's some of the things that people come to on Instagram, DMs. They say, oh, my hoover stopped working and I'm not getting a reply. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I destroyed a nation state, darling. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously there's a, a huge debate at the moment with gender and, and sex and identity and trans rights, things like that. Yeah. I mean, that must be something that people are very keen to hear your opinion on. And I, I imagine all Are you keen to hear it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But do all sides try and get you to be a, a, an ally for whatever side of the debate they're on? I don't think so. I think, I think it's sort of... I think people are sort of could guess what my what I think which is LGB and that's it (laughs) (laughs) I think all of that I find um, the big question they all ask is what is a woman like that and uh, I think that is... I've read a really good thing about that, which is that the question is inherently pro-trans because the minute you start actually... If you really want an answer to that question, you've got to go, well, what is an answer that 100% is going to answer what is a woman? That every possible option ticks that box. And so you go, well, is it someone who classically looks like a woman? Well, there's lots of people that don't classically look like women, so you can get rid of that. And then is it people maybe without a penis? Well, there's lots of people without penis that are women. And the, the more you go into it, the more you realise that really the only reliable definition is if somebody thinks and feels that they are a woman. That's sort of the only way that you can do it, based on asking that question. And so I think most people understand that, and I think most people are curious about the human condition and what it's like to be sexually interested in things and what it's like to feel like something and how sometimes you feel... Like, I don't always feel that masculine, obviously. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's lots of times I feel differently and I think to sort of just go, oh, no, it's men and women and that's it, and, and you pick a side kind of thing, is such a, uh, an absence of curiosity and an interest in what it is to be a human and to be a living thing, that life isn't these sort of binaries. And so I, I find it quite easy to dismiss those sorts of people because I just think, well, you're just sort of not interested in life. There's hundreds of types of culture and countries and languages, and you're quite happy to sort of engage in all these different things, but in this issue, it has to be man and woman. just seems really... Um, shitty to me and just sort of boring and tired and not most people's lived experiences. So when you see politicians grapple with that, do you kind of empathise for them when yeah. they're asked that sort of question or do you think, oh, why don't you just say the sort well, of thing you've got you to do a sound bite, haven't you? And you've also got to appeal to lots of people that maybe haven't done the reading. So I've got a godson who's trans and he was a bit concerned about the reaction of somebody to him transitioning and... He, he was saying, like, he's, he's just being really difficult about it. And I was saying, well, you've done the reading because this matters to you. You've done all the thinking about it, waking in the middle of the night, all of that stuff. But he hasn't, and you have to give him some time to get there. And I sort of feel that society just has to some, need some time. But it, it has become one of those issues that's really aggressive and nasty. And 
I sort of I feel like the people that are really getting a horrible time of it are the trans community. And the thing that made me realise that particularly was that there was it was a few years ago now that somebody in New Zealand received asylum from the UK, a trans person, because it was too dangerous for them to be in this country. If we're a progressive, modern country, that is a disgrace, really. Um, and I, so I kind of know that the debate here is toxic and bad, and it's different elsewhere, and it can be different. And I think we just... I, I think we've got to be patient with people, and if people are being aggressive, sort of hold them at bay, but try and educate and try and explain it and try and show it's not anything to be scared of. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do with the Late Night Lysit show is... I want trans people on it, I want non-binary people on it, and I want them there just as them. I don't want them to be necessary. If they want to talk about it, then great, but they don't have to. I just, if you see them in the same way that when I saw Graham Norton when I was growing up, you go, oh, they're just people. Okay, yeah. fine. And then you just eventually you get used to it. And beyond sort of sexual politics, what is your sort of... I'm guessing... I would, I'm inferring that you're on the left. I think that's sort of. I actually don't... Again, I don't really know. I think I'm sort of centre-left, but I, am, I can be quite right-wing in, like, sort of... <laughs> when it suits. Um, I don't what? know. I, sometimes I, do, I understand conservatism, and I understand why you might want to kind of preserve things, and I, I can't remember what the argument is exactly, but there's a thing of, like, <laughs> if, you, if you pull a gate away, yeah. you don't know why that... F- a fence away, you don't know why that fence is there, and there could be a bull that's going to come through and destroy everything. So uh, maintaining institutions and gradually changing them and moving them, I have a real respect for that as, a, as a, an approach. So there's lots about the Conservatives that I... And I listened to John Major on um, uh, leading the rest of his politics, and I thought there was lots about what he said, which was sort of old-school conservatism, which I thought was kind of fine, you know. Cool, go for it. Good luck to you. (laughs) Never mind. Um, But I'm not not anti-Tory particularly, or anti-conservative. I am very anti this government and what they've done and how, how they've soured everything. I'm definitely... I know I'm against that. But I don't, I don't hold a grudge against Kenneth Clark or something. You know, there's <laughs> other, there's certain people I just think, fine, you know, go for it. So what, what are you most right-wing on? <laughs> Immigration? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I sort of think like some sort of like fiscal stuff. I think, like... I do not trust any hippies or left-wing people <laughs> with splitting a bill at a restaurant. <laughs> I had four papa dogs. <laughs> I think there are certain things where you kind of go, fair enough, get an adult in here to sort of deal with it. That is such a good point. Yeah. On splitting a bill. Because <laughs> I'm always just like, just split it equal ways. Yeah, nightmare. Absolute nightmare. So, why is that more of a thing on the left, do you think? What, splitting the bill? Well, but like, oh, well, I didn't have that, but you had that, rather than just like... Well, everyone's poor, aren't they? They're all <laughs> artists. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Is everyone on the left? I'm not sure that's true, but... No, not everyone, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> but most of them. Most of them haven't clawed up. <laughs> so then, centre-left-ish, then. So what's your view of... Labour, if you don't like this government, has the opposition done anything to enamour itself to you? Do you think Keir Starmer's a good leader? He seems like a grown-up. He seems like he knows what he's doing. I love your impression of him. <laughs> Joe, it's a pleasure to me. 
I just want to say to Joe Lyster, on behalf of the country, <laughs> what you're doing with late night Lyster is wrong. <laughs> Can I have that as a quote from Keir Starmer? Because it boosts the old ratings. <laughs> um, this is the thing I don't. I, so I don't. I have a bit of a thing of like I don't want to tell people how to vote. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's my place because I, as I say, I don't know how I think about things a lot of the time, and I debate them internally a lot of the time, and I maintain opposing views often at the same time. Um, I think my general thing is not them, so not the current government, but basically you could just have an egg (laughs) and that would do a better job. So I'm hopeful that if he does get in, that he does great things, but I'm also aware of the system that he's in and how he'll have to play some dirty games and I'm really not looking forward to the election because I think it's going to be a horrible, ugly time for our country and there's going to be so much bitterness and nastiness, and most of it coming from my Twitter account. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I I don't want to tell people how to vote, but not them. But do do you ever think you you would like to go beyond that? Maybe not tell people how to vote or even ever stand, but do you think, actually, if there was a political party that I really liked or a leader I really liked... Yeah, well, I'd love that. That, So that's, that's telling, I suppose, that there's no political party where I go, yeah, great, lovely, got it. I do feel I'm one of those homeless... What do they call me? Politically homeless. Politically homeless people. Um, We've all been there. actually homeless, live in a lovely <laughs> mid-terrace um, in South Birmingham. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't... That, so I got whipped up in the Clegmania because I was a student and was like, oh, he seems cool. Not cool now. Um, so I, I'm, I'm susceptible to that. If someone came along, uh, some sort of fascist would probably get me going. <laughs> some um, sort of liberal fascist. Some sort of liberal fascist <laughs> would. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Um... <laughs> Is this the end of my career? Um, but yeah, I don't, so I don't, I don't. I actually don't know who I'll vote for in the next election. I don't. Yeah. And, and you, you live in Birmingham, so. Did you ever live in London, or did you just never move here and you've always been able to have the career you've had from Birmingham? Uh, so I, I really lucked out. I, met, I went to university with a girl called Caitlin, who's one of my best friends, and her mum is Jenny Bevan, who's the uh, costume designer for lots of Hollywood films, and she offered, the first time I had a gig in London, I could stay at her house in Peckham, and I've basically been staying there ever since. <laughs> and she's become my other mother, and... <laughs> She has a little, like, there's a little basement flat, and I rent that off her now. And I've had the most amazing... I've been so lucky, and I don't think I would have had the career without her, because she made it so easy to come to London and do gigs, but I never had to live here. And um, I've learnt so much from her as well, because she's one of the most generous people I've ever met, and she... All sorts of sort of waifs and strays come in through. She's got quite a big house. She bought it a long time ago for you know, pennies, and now it's um, worth loads, and it's like this amazing house, loads of bedrooms, and you'll always find a set designer who's been doing something on the West End, or uh, an actor that's come in, or whatever, and you just never know who's going to be there, and she's so generous with it, and gets a lot out of it as well, but sort of taught me a lot about the industry, and lots of things like that, so I, um, yeah, without her, I probably wouldn't have done 
uh, had as many opportunities, I suppose. But the fact that I could stay in Birmingham and keep my roots there, I think it's been really helpful because it's sort of kept me in the community that I care about and they don't think that I'm this sort of tosser that's gone off to London and... Well, lots of them probably do, but, like... <laughs> Uh, like I've, you know, I've maintained a kind of understanding of what it's like to be on sort of on the ground a bit. I don't know, like it's sort of, yeah, it feels a bit more real. And I'm, I'm, I'm much happier there as well. I love being in. Have you been to Birmingham? I love Birmingham. It's a fantastic place. It's a great city in the world. It's, it's wonderful. Big, big After Nottingham, it's the one of the greatest <laughs> cities in the Midlands. Um, <laughs> but do you feel, in a way, because I, I feel this with Nottingham is that it, politics is slightly different there. And London is its own separate ecosystem. And yeah. I think about Brexit so often. Oh, and how, God, yeah. And I, I live in London and I love it. I think it's one of the most amazing places on the planet. And, and I, I came here with a chip on my shoulder and I've lost it because I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. But the rest of England, the rest of Britain, Scotland kind of gets a look in. R- regional England basically doesn't exist in our sort of national framework sometimes, the way we think about the country. Yeah. And I think that had an effect in Brexit. And I think what you're doing and like making programmes from Birmingham, ki- giving it a cultural... No, Birmingham's got a strong enough cultural identity, but in terms of the sorts well. of shows you're doing... <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's really important yeah. that people see big shows made there that have the sort of focus that your shows have. Yeah. And that was... It wasn't an argument with Channel 4, but it was a... It was, it's way more expensive to do it from Birmingham. I don't really understand why, but it is a big uh, issue for them from the financing of that show but it was a kind of deal breaker for me I was like this if if it's not in Birmingham it's a different show so you can commission a different show but this is the show that we want to make and I'm really grateful to them that they went okay cool and they now I mean they sort of did at the time but they now really see why and they were saying like the commissioners were saying it was quite hard to explain they could explain it from a kind of it ticks a lot of boxes because it's they have to do regional stuff and all of that they could explain that but from an editorial point of view they were struggling to kind of go why can't this be in London? And then once they saw it, they went, well, it's sort of obvious. It's, it, it, but it was hard for me to articulate that as well. But I do think Brexit, as you say, was a really kind of... Because Birmingham basically was the same as the rest of the country. and It was 52, 40... I think it was, or very close to that. And I feel like Birmingham basically does represent, in those big votes, generally what the rest of the country's doing. And I sort of saw Brexit coming because enough of the people I was speaking to were talking about voting for it and none of my London friends even thought it was any, an issue at all, really. And that, I thought, oh, OK, this could happen. Well, obviously, we're in London. It's a great place. Um, oh, I, like, I love it. Like, and, yeah, I, I'm, I, do, I do... As I say, like, I've, the, the chip on my shoulder is still a little bit there, but it's mostly gone. But... Um, <laughs> I do think it's an amazing city, and I'm very, like, I love... I mean, the fact that... this So this theatre, I did my first film stand-up show in, and I couldn't believe I was doing a West End theatre. Like, that was mad to me. And, yeah. My dad... Mum and dad came to that show, and actually, he retired that day. <laughs> uh, he came to this show... As a result of the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, his school had become an academy, and that process had sort of... Uh, I might be taking words out of his mouth here, but as my, my observation was the academy system was not one that he was a fan of. Um, I, this is one thing he gave me when I was at school. He handed me this um, book, and it was by Michael Gove, and it's Michael Gove, Everything I Know About Teaching. And I looked at it, and I was like, what? And I opened it, and it was empty. <laughs> I was like, lovely stuff, lovely stuff. Um, Really nice. And um, 
he, he said to me, basically, yeah, that the, the, this academy system had come in and people had come in that didn't know the school. And he'd worked there for, I think, 20 years, getting on for 20 years. And they basically changed loads of stuff and they sort of took him in for some sort of meeting because he wasn't doing exactly what he was meant to. And he just decided in that meeting, I'm never coming back to this school. And he didn't want to leave and do anything. And he just left. And he went to the doctor. I'm so sorry, Dad, if this goes out and you get sued. He went to the doctor and he just listed off the uh, symptoms of depression and anxiety. And the doctor said, when are you due up for retirement? And he said, like, a month or something. He was like, let's see if we can write a note for a month. (laughs) And that was it. Just gone. Um, Yeah. He's a fascinating man, my dad. (laughs) He's great. Yeah, uh, I mean, he sounds fascinating. So, did he? Do you think he had any political influence on you at all? Oh, big time! Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, like, I don't really know how he votes. Weirdly, he's sort of he's a bit of a kind of floating voter as well. But he has a real sense of like, uh, he's of decency and that people should be respected in the particularly in the workplace. And I think that's one thing that. The, the whole craft moving in and buying out Cadbury. And I've just seen a little bit in Birmingham and elsewhere in the world that, that big companies come in and they sort of see people as little chess pieces, not even as big as chess pieces, just like cattle that they can just sort of throw around and, oh, we'll get rid of that and we'll get rid of this and whatever. And I understand when you're running a business, you've got to be... But there's sort of no human decency to it the minute you get, like, super corporate. And... I think that's ugly, and I think there's a better way of doing things. So, and he's, and both mum and dad have sort of felt that, and felt that the workplace should be a place of decency, and you should have pride in your work. Mum's always said that happiness is um, meaningful occupation, and she doesn't necessarily mean like your actual occupation, but just having something that's meaningful to do. And I think a lot of the working world doesn't provide that; it just provides making money for Jeff Bezos. <laughs> It sounds like your sort of politics, in a way, reflects your parents in that... So it's quite a gentle politics. It's not yeah. firebrand, it's not zealotry, <laughs> yeah. it's, not, yeah. it's not like you're reading the Communist Manifesto and sort of getting obsessed with those. Were you ever tempted by uh, a, a sort of zealotry, left or right? Were you ever tempted to be a radical? Um, no. Well, yes and no, because I, sort of, I feel like being queer is sort of radical in itself, or it definitely was... It was enough, enough <laughs> radicalisation for me, because it was so different. It was, at the time, like, I, I can't read... I think there was one other kid in my year group at school that was openly queer, because we were in Section 28 for most of my uh, childhood. It was illegal for the teachers to tell you anything about it, so it was, it was just this sort of weird thing. He was this kind of odd, kind of gay fish. And... Um, <laughs> And so I felt like talking about that openly and doing stand-up about that and all that was like radical enough. And so and I, I sort of felt like that did enough in terms of expressing the sort of politics that I would be into without having to be... I wasn't political when I started out particularly, and I, d- I still don't really feel that political. I know that I am, but I'm, I don't feel it. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 it's not, it is a soft politics, really but then it can be quite barbed if Liz Truss is in front of me. <laughs> so you're early 30s, mid-30s? Kind of. I'm 35 on Wednesday. Well, happy birthday for Wednesday. Thank you very much. So growing up queer, <laughs> having been born in 1987, 1988... Yeah. Um, Good I'll, maths. Thanks. <laughs> I went to an academy. Um, <laughs> 
I didn't. I'm far too <laughs> yeah, old to go. Because a lot of people, I'm 40, right? So I might assume, and I'm a heterosexual guy, that I might assume that actually, oh, well, maybe people younger than me, it was a lot easier to be gay than it was to be older than me when people were really having to fight for their rights. Now, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't presume that it was easy, but what was the experience of realising you're queer, coming out as queer, being queer yeah. in Britain from the late 80s to now? Uh, the thing is, is I think it's, it's hard depending on your individual circumstances, but the culture that you grow up in will definitely play a big factor in that. But if you're in a family that understands it and gets it, you've got your own little sort of world there that you, you can't sort of be penetrated, I suppose. And uh, I, yeah, I didn't realise that Section 28 was in place because it was all about secrecy. So I didn't realise actually until the last couple of years when I heard it talked about somewhere else, someone else who's my age, Sean Fay, who's a trans writer and uh, has written... If you're, if you're questioning issues around it and aren't quite sure about things, I really recommend that book because it answered a lot of questions for me. Um, what's it called? The Transgender Issue, it's called. And Section 28, yeah, basically said that teachers couldn't talk about it and uh, couldn't, uh, yeah, couldn't discuss... LGBT issues essentially and so it was never on the cards as an identity it was never and the sort of what happens when that hap when you put some sort of legislation in like that is you end up with it being a dirty thing essentially can't tell kids about it which is the same old argument they're bringing up now and have done for years and years and years and uh, so but I was camp, and I loved musical theatre, and I loved showing off and singing and all that. So it was sort of... I wasn't behaving in the way that a lot of the boys were. And so it was sort of obvious. And so I, to me, I, the first time I sort of found a, a boy attractive or a man attractive, I kind of just was... I went into this sort of deep fear of, like, oh, well, that's it. Like, if I've had that one thought... I'm gay, and that's my life ruined. And I remember, like, I can remember it really vividly being in the bath and having that like, iron taste in my mouth of thinking, shit, I'm, I, there's something wrong with me, and I'm dirty, and society will, like, you know, hate me. Turns out they love. Me. <laughs> 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 they adore me, it turns out. But um, it's, uh, it was scary, it was really scary. But then I did do these musical theatre shows uh, in the Birmingham Alexandra every summer, and there were lots of camp queer kids there, and it was a lot different there, and I felt very accepted there. And it took a while, but I came out as gay because I thought that was what I was, and then realised that that wasn't... I was still attracted to women as well, and it would be foolish to cut off half the market. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And then, so then... Said like a true Tory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so then gradually sort of went with bisexual. And now I, I, for ease, I say bisexual, but I do feel like pansexual is the uh, intellectually the most accurate way of describing my sexuality, which is just that I feel that sexuality is based on so many things that are so intangible that um, it would be... Like, gender plays a role in that, but it's not often... Uh, you know, I generally am attracted to people I fall in love with, and but I also find Harry Styles unbearably attractive. <laughs> um, you know, so there's like maybe I'm in love with Harry Styles. Maybe that's it. <laughs> but like, you know, there's there's lots of reasons why you might be attracted to someone. I like good arms, which is why I've got <laughs> fabulous arms. And um, you know, there's lots of different things. And so, 
I feel like pansexual explains that, but you know, if I'm speaking to someone in a pub and they say, you're gay, aren't you, or whatever, I'll say, oh, no, I'm actually bisexual, because that's the easiest way of explaining it, but um, I'm not precious about it particularly. I bang who I want to bang. <laughs> if, that, if they want to bang as well. <laughs> well, on that note... You're so careful, haven't you? <laughs> We've got time for a couple of quick audience questions. So, uh, indicate clearly, and I'll take two or three. And, yes, right down the front. First of all, Matt, like the socks. Lovely socks. Thank you very much. Yes, happy Pride socks. Thank you very much. Did you wear them as a Pride thing, or just the colourful socks? They're just colourful socks. Look at me, wokey Joe Lysett, (laughs) applying my (laughs) politics to your foot. (laughs) But thank you. My question is, in the unlucky event where you get invited to be part of a Lord's, Oh. Would you go for that? In the unlikely event you're offered a peerage, would you go in the House of Lords? Great question. I don't... Probably not. Do I have to do stuff? <laughs> no, obviously not. No, yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. Like, presumably, it's, you don't have to do it. You can say no. Well, you can claim expenses while you're not doing it. You claim expenses while you're not doing it? Well... Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't think I've got anything to add to the House of Lords, so probably not. OK. It's a no to the House Would of you? Lords. Would you? Would you? For a laugh. For a laugh. <laughs> well, maybe if it's a laugh, yeah. then, yeah. You have to go to the House of Lords for a laugh? I don't think they offer it on those terms, do they? <laughs> Keir Stommery. Oh, do it for a laugh, yeah. Joe. <laughs> Me next to Lebedev and Alan Sugar. <laughs> that would be a laugh. <laughs> that would be a oh, laugh. Oh, man. OK, any other questions? And indicate clearly, yeah, yes, the one down the front. If you could take Liz Truss and write out in Birmingham, where would you take her? Great question. If you could take Liz Truss and a nice hat in Birmingham, where would you take her? And also, could you name some London places for the local crowd? I wouldn't want to be seen with her anywhere. <laughs> I don't... Where, where, would, where do you take Liz Truss? What does she eat? Oh, that was a thing. I said, I said in, a, in a gag on Late Night Lysit that she eats the organs of dogs. <laughs> right. and, that, um, and then the Daily Mail said that I was bullying her because I said that she eats the organs of dogs. Um, so then I had to put a statement out saying, like, she doesn't eat the organs of dogs. So I'd take her to a vet, probably, and we'd just have a nice, we'd have a nice night there. Is it in Crafts is in Birmingham. I'd take her to Crafts. Crafts is in Birmingham. My God. That's a great idea. <laughs> okay. Oh, yes, someone up on the balcony. Shout out. Hi. I, so, me and Joe share two loves in life. One is gardening and one is Liz Truss. <laughs> so, if Liz Truss were a flower, what would she be? If Liz Truss was a flower, what sort of flower would she be? Oh. That's a tough question. Well, probably something like a peony. I mean, the peony's very beautiful, but it's gone in seconds. <laughs> <laughs> A stiff breeze, <laughs> and that peony is toast. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, peony. What an exquisite answer. That was absolutely... I feel like um, Alan Titchmarsh all of a sudden. <laughs> is this Gardener's Question Time? You've turned, I've, if, if that's my legacy, that I've turned this podcast into Gardener's Question Time, I'm thrilled. That may be one of your many legacies. Joe, this has been such a treat. Uh, first of all, let's give a huge round of applause to yourselves for being such an amazing crowd and the amazing three questions we had. Everyone here at the Duchess Theatre and at Avalon who made tonight possible. But, folks, this has been one of the most enjoyable episodes of this I've ever recorded. It's wow. Flown. Joe, you are... Do you know what? Obviously, in comedy, 
you sort of enter each other's um, spheres at, you know, at various points in life. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, I do, I do love you, so it is... <laughs> Why did I choose that? I was like, <laughs> I'm trying to make a really nice point. That. You meet a lot of different people in comedy and occasionally you'll pass across. You were yeah. always phenomenal. You've always been very nice to me. You've always been very supportive. Oh. And... In, uh, and you know, in a life where, in, a, in an industry where people are basically just, and we're all doing it, you're just trying to make something for yourself, you've always been a, such a kind person, and um, it means the world that you've come on here today, it really does, oh, and you've been you. a phenomenal, phenomenal guest, and you do so much good for the world, as well as entertaining it. You've used your platform in a way that very few people ever will. This has been a privilege. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe oh, Lysett! Thank thank that's, that's so lovely. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Sorry. There you go, Joe Lyster. I didn't want that to end at all. Hopefully, at some point in the future, I can get him back on. It was just so, such great fun. And it is, obviously, I love interviewing. I mean, I'll, I'll chat to anyone, to be honest. I think everyone's fascinating. But it, it, those ones where it's not a politician, it, 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 just, it just brings something different. And you kind of, you think, well, he would be a great politician. He has so many of the attributes required to be a great politician. But as with lots of people who have the talent, doesn't fancy it. And that is absolutely fair enough. Of course, he's got plenty to be getting on with with his own career. Um, So please leave a five-star written review um, on whatever platform you listen to this on. It helps the podcast get up the charts. And my next guest, Monday the 17th of July, the SMP's Mari Black, uh, and then three shows at Edinburgh, Kate Forbes, Humza Youssef, Angela Rayner. And then when we're back in London on the 18th of September, my guest is Dan Jarvis, the former paratrooper. His book is incredible. Served in Iraq, served in Afghanistan, Labour MP, Labour Mayor, and who knows what next. Is he a future Prime Minister? Come and find out on the 18th of September. And on the 2nd of October, my guest is the lead singer of the Sleaford Mods, Jason Williamson, a fascinating guy. And they are, they're brilliant, the Sleaford Mods. Really funny, really angry, really satirical lyrics um, that really reflect the state of the nation in a way that no one else does. Um, and he's really politically engaged, really socially aware. And that... Um, that is such a treat because he is he's a massive star so that will be that's uh well that's on the 2nd of october and i'll put a link to buy the tickets i'm just rambling now so i'll see you next time Ta-ra. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.